All right, well, let's get started. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come and look at this uh, topic of weaving our souls together in the covenant of marriage, and as we look at things like contempt and shame and how we speak to one another and how we feel towards one another and the conflict of our desires, Lord, we know that we are on eggshells, perhaps, or thin ice, and we ask your Spirit to come, go before us, and would you uh, help us as we look to learn to love one another as you have loved us and how we can be a better reflection and marriage of, of the love that you've had for us. So help us now. Would this material be practical and helpful and, and even encouraging and uh, expand our horizons on what even it is that we're called to do in this wonderful thing called marriage. So bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, curious. I just wanted to check in. Those of you who've read any of this little book, I was just talking to Andrew Odell about it. Would one of y'all be willing to kind of close that door? Things driving by, thanks. The, the book that we've been going through for the la- last week and this week and then next week. And we're, so we're doing kind of like a little excursus from Tim Keller's Meaning for Marriage. And we've broken it up into his three sections of we, uh, leaving father and mother, holding fast to your wife, or weaving your lives together. And then next week, we'll look at cleaving. What does that mean to be one flesh exactly? Um, but I've been really surprised. But as I told you in the very beginning, I haven't read this book before. I've read a lot of Allender's other stuff. But I was like, oh, you didn't know what to expect. I knew he was really loquacious and... I have found his words really helpful. Curious, just to check in. It's fine if you haven't read any of it, but are there any questions or things that have jumped out at you that we need to address um, so far, either from this week's reading or last week's reading in the Allender book? Cool, great. I hope it's been a blessing to you as much as it's been for me. I'm excited for today. We're going to look, as I alluded to already, this issue of weaving lives together. And so again, he's all he's doing in this whole book is just one verse of the Bible, Genesis 2 and 24, um, verse 24, which is leaving father and mother, holding fast to your spouse and becoming one flesh. So there's two chapters that we're looking at today, chapter 6, which is about connecting and communication and then uh, the chapter 7, bringing our souls together. Both of those uh, have to do with this purpose, as we've talked about several times before, of sanctification, that this covenant of marriage is primarily not to make us happier or just to kind of get along, but to, to really be God's instrument, God's vessel. This person in this marital relationship is God's appointed instrument of making you more like himself. And particularly, uh, as we look at this information today, we see the nature and the incredible love of God. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Hopefully you've picked up the sheet. You've got an outline, a sheet, and discussion questions. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to focus on um, the latter half of the chapter in particular. So would you, because we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about 
actually what is in Genesis 3. A lot of this material is coming straight out of Genesis 3. So would you follow along with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Which is actually going to be part of the lesson. At, if you are at the 8.15, if you're going to be at the 10.30 service, this was the first lesson today. So interesting how that came about. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, cool, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I'm going to stop right there. So, uh, lot, hopefully you've heard this before. There is so much in this that we could, t- we could spend the whole semester talking about this one chapter. But I want to notice a couple things um, in this. Before we get to that, he opens uh, this first chapter, chapter 6, with these amazingly uh, astonishing words. A marriage is only as good as a couple's ability to fight. Can I get an amen to that? And I think it's really amazing. He really poo-poos those who say, I we don't fight in our marriage. We don't really have any loose words with that. And he goes, first of all, baloney. I don't believe it for a second, because even if you don't say it, 
I guarantee you it's in your heart, and whether it comes out or not, uh, usually it will fester the longer it is in there. And he also talks about, as one of the themes of these two chapters, is that there are some great techniques. There, I, I've even included some of them, uh, you'll see there at the bottom of um, the, the outline, to, uh, to really help the marriage be, you know, passable. Just a good, if you, if you desire just to get along and to, to kind of be nice and to avoid conflict, there are some really simple things that you can put into practice that will help. And that's great if you want kind of a C, maybe a B minus marriage, he says. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that in the next chapter. Um, but the amazing thing is that fighting is the conflict of desire. And if you just are about trying to avoid conflict, then you're deadening your heart's desire. And you're actually far short of the goal that God has for marriage. And he asked this powerful question, is mediocrity immoral? Should the desire for mediocrity be something that is far worse than, the, like, than fighting, for example? So I think it's a pretty provocative way to start. And what he does is he's looking at Genesis 3 to start with and says... How can we, you know, so fighting these competing desires, all of this comes out in communication, right? And so we have to talk about communication and how does actually God speak, particularly in the midst of conflict. So we read Genesis 3 because this is the fall of Adam and Eve. This is when sin has entered the world and conflict comes up first between man and God. And as we'll see, man with woman, or uh, you know, the horizontal relationship. Then there's the, the um, sin even within your own body, right? And within yourself, there's an element, an aspect of sin. And then there's a, a fourth element between us and the world around us. Cursed is the ground even because of this sin. So we're going to look briefly at, okay, what does good communication look like? What is, he calls it good talk. Uh, and so we're going to look specifically at what God does when Adam and Eve have fallen. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And I think that's kind of amazing right there. The cool of the day was at the end of the day. God apparently, was in, before sin entered the world, he made it a habit to just be with his created people, those that he loved. He, he draws up... Uh, Allender thinks of this scene as uh, God coming after work and they're cracking open a nice bottle of wine, maybe having a, a spread of cheese and talking with one another. That is the, the rhythm of paradise that God had enjoyed with his people. But now they're not there. And so what does God do? What does God say? He says this. First of all, he asks a question. Where are you? Which is, whenever God asks a question, it's not because he's trying to get information. He knows the answer. He's extending an invitation. This is an invitation to Adam and to Eve. Or really, he said, called to the man. So it's an invitation to Adam. And I think that's one of the first things that he says, good conversation, good talk, explores reality. 
That's a very kind of like ethereal way of putting it. But what he means by exploring reality is that uh, it's an invitation to the way things are. But notice, uh, I was really blessed by the, uh, the image that he gave, particularly in marriage, because usually problems occur when one person has a particular view of reality and the other person, notice, has a different view of reality. And there comes the collision. And he says, that's actually helpful. This is part of how conflict works out, is maybe you have competing desires or competing views on the world around us or what happened, but God, the, the commitment to uh, exploring reality is a commitment to see the world the way God sees it. That's what we're striving to do in marriage. And the way he talks about this is imagine, all right, fix your eyes on me right now, right? How well are you seeing the organ behind me? Blurry. Now fix your eyes on the organ behind me in the background. How well are you seeing me at this moment? Blurry. Blurry, right? So the reality is still here. I'm standing here. The organ's back there. But you can only focus on one particular piece of reality, given our nature, at one time. And so he uses this analogy of imagine looking at the background and the foreground. That's the two different views that husband and wife sometimes bring together in marriage because of their differences. And one is focusing on some aspect of reality that's true, and another is focusing on another aspect of reality that's also true. And so the, the trick is that we are trying to see the world the way God sees it, which involves, involves both the foreground and the background. I'd never thought of marriage that way, of looking at two people coming together, because more often than not, what we're usually disagreeing about in conflict is not uh, two, or one, but he's, somebody's wrong and somebody's right. Usually both are getting aspects of the truth, right? And so I think that was a helpful way to even explore this, um, the nature of conflict. And the first thing, that God doesn't come with accusation. He comes with invitation and extends the, um, the opportunity to see reality as it really is. Which, by the way, if you've ever, you know, that can be straining when somebody's reality comes up against your own and expands your own horizons. That is painful. That is hard. But that is exactly going back to the purpose of marriage is that we're expanding our limited horizons to grow to be able to see the world as God sees it. And the second thing that God, uh, good talk is, is that good talk honors differences, he says. And so I think we see this in this passage by God having incredible dignity, even for Adam and Eve. He knows that they have sinned. There is a fundamental distinction now. Not only are they limited, but now they're fallen, sinful creatures. And God still bestows dignity on them and gives them choice and, and, and this relationship to talk through what they've done. But the way he expands on talking about uh, honoring differences really goes into the fact that men and women are really different. And he looks at this uh, sociologist who did a study that says men typically speak about 25,000 words a day, and women speak about 40,000 words a day, almost double the amount that men do. And the interesting thing is that men typically use 20,000 of those 25,000 during their work hours. And wives, particularly if they're, a, a, he said the study was looking at a stay-at-home mom, 
Of their 40, it was like five to 10,000 that they used during their work hours, usually repeating the word no about 5,000 times. So if you add up that, or subtract it, right? Like by the end of the day, when, when husband and wife are together after work, man's got about 5,000 words left in him typically, and wives have about 30,000 to 35,000 words that they're just getting started. Can you see how conflict might arise in, in this? But those differences are there. And the amazing thing, um, gosh, that he talked about this, uh, John Gottman, has anybody heard of John Gottman, a sociologist at the University of Washington? He has this thing called the Love Lab, uh, where they're studying, and, and so there was this whole study that he did where basically he invited couples to come after work from 6 to 10 p.m. And they would, they, the whole premise was just do whatever you would normally do. This was a nice place. They provided, they wouldn't cook your meals for you, but you had all the ingredients, all the, the stuff that you need to have a nice evening together. The, the one condition is that you're going to be observed by the people behind the, you know, the glass or whatever. Like, and so, um, I don't know if you know sociologist studies or that sort of thing, but apparently 0.1 to 0.2% or 0.1 to 0.2 correlation is like really high. And like correlation, right, you've heard correlation is not causation. But usually when you have 0.1 to 0.2 correlation, most sociologists go, something significant is happening here. Well, in their studies, they could predict with 0.85 correlation, 0.85 correlation, when folks would get divorced. And there'd be one thing that kept coming up that was indicating that prediction. And it was the presence of contempt. When you hold one another in contempt. And so that was secular studies that have shown contempt is something that has to be addressed in, uh, within marriage. And we see this going back, uh, or actually going down in verse 12. So God says, uh, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12 says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And, all right, I'm going to go into Hebrew syntax. Now, don't fall asleep now, but just think about English syntax, right? If you hear the sentence, you did a wonderful job today, but I couldn't, you know, help but notice you left the trash inside. What do you hear in that sentence? Right, because English syntax, by the word but, draws the focus onto the second. I've heard people say, you, you could say whatever you want on the front end, but as soon as you say but, you forgot everything else is null and void. You're going to focus in on this right here. Hebrew syntax in this verse, verse 12, it's like the first, there's three parts to it. The first one is an absolute shout. There's so much attention drawn on this. The second one is also heavily focused on. The third one is like a little itty-bitty whisper. And so it is, let me try to read it the way that the Hebrew would actually be written. Uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now, that is contempt. Can you hear it? Blaming. And why were they blaming? Because they were naked and they were ashamed. They were originally created naked and unashamed. 
But this is what sin does. So um, good talk. It explores reality. It honors the differences between us. But the third thing that um, we see in good talk is that it pursues intimate truth. I love the way God does this in here. He's asking questions to get at the truth and get them to acknowledge. And all they're doing is skirting around it. So um, we, we didn't look at this, but you, you have prayer books in there. If you can find one that looks like this, I want to just draw your attention to uh, this word trough. Anybody heard the word trough before? Oh, maybe you have. Okay, interesting. Well, turn to page 301 in the prayer book. I was shocked that Allender was using this word trough because what it has to deal with is it's the old English word for truth. And so if you look at the vows, this is the 1928 prayer book. So you have to have, there's a couple different versions of the prayer book in your pews. But if you have this like really red one with the cross at the top left, listen to the, uh, on page 301 at the very bottom. This is the vow that the man makes to the, the wife and that she will repeat after him. I take thee, so-and-so, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. So far, so good. You've heard that before, right? But notice the last phrase. And thereto I plight thee my troth. Now, the only time I've ever done this was actually in your sister's wedding. So, um, I, but there's something beautiful about this. And Allender's talking about what, troth is trust. You're pledging your trust and that you're going to be somebody who's trustworthy, that, you, that you're somebody who loves the truth. That's what you're giving to the other. I'm going to be about the truth, and I'm going to give that part of you. I'm going to give that commitment to you. That's what they actually... In, the 1662 prayer book, the 1928 prayer book, uh, those were some of the marriage vows. In several places throughout this book, he talks about the importance of getting after the truth and and looking at um, what he calls troth. And again, it's going back. The whole purpose of marriage is to make us more like God, to see reality as it is, the way God really sees it. And to do that, you have to go into intimate truth. It's not neglecting truth, it's not compromising, but curiously and caringly going after the truth together. Respecting one another's different viewpoints and trying to understand why that is. Alright, so then he goes into bad talk. Alright, I spent a lot of time on that. So bad talk, one of the things that it does, first of all, it hides, then it blames, and thirdly, it distorts. And what he means by distorts is what probably maybe you think, justifications, defenses. Uh, I'm going to try and find the place that he talks about. Let's see here. I love this. A defense is usually either an effort to explain what we meant and thus take away the hurt, or a commitment to present ourselves as innocent and blameless. So... We know what it means to blame the other. It's just, I'm going to come at you and completely disagree with you. Then there's the other way of just hiding in, in our shame. Or it's a, a defense, which is a more nuanced approach, which can take some of what you say uh, and try to distort it in such a way that it gets you off the hook. Either you're defending yourself or 
you're saying yes, but you don't see this as well. Uh, and so that's what bad talk does. And it mainly focuses here on shame and contempt. We hide because we are ashamed and we extend blame and hold one another in contempt. So uh, what must we do? We must need to be more like God, but we also need to do what he says is redeeming talk. And this is really important. It's not just enough to, to get better at communicating. If all you do is, well, we're just going to try harder next time, that is not sufficient because you have to address the harm that has been done. And so he says uh, it's not enough to resolve a problem or even communicate better. These elements of godly speech must be woven together with a third kind of strand, the blood-red strands of forgiveness. And I love, it drove me nuts when my kids were at, uh, they were at a Christian school and they went through this entire passage of Genesis 3 and they left off the part, the reason I read all the way to the the very uh, verse 21, when God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That is, I think, the most significant part of all of Genesis 3 because he doesn't leave them in their shame. He actually moves towards them and covers their shame. And we're called to love like that. Uh, And part of loving that way involves forgiveness. And I think forgiveness, I'll just make a quick book plug here. This is another one of Allender's books, probably in the top three books that I found most helpful in my entire life. Bold Love by Dan Allender. He talks about what what does love actually mean and what does it look like? He talks a lot about forgiveness, and forgiveness is critical. This is this last... Uh, uh, component of redeeming talk that we have to be able to extend forgiveness. I love the way that he defines it. He says, to forgive another means to cancel the debt of what is owed in order to provide a door of opportunity for repentance and restoration of the broken relationship. And that involves usually three things. So it, it means canceling the debt, right? That is revoking your right to to revenge. So that's the first step in forgiveness, is you have to revoke your own right to, re- to take revenge. You can only do that if you actually have a humble enough view of yourself. But if you revoke your right to revenge, uh, i.e. cancel the debt, and then pursue goodness. Notice it's not just, I'm going to revoke this and, and uh, revoke my right to revenge and cancel your debt. You actually, it would be really, uh, he uses this analogy, um, forgiveness is a, can be a financial term, right? Debt forgiveness. We're canceling a debt. But it is unwise and not good to cancel a debt and then lend out more money until that person has proven themselves trustworthy to be lent more money. That's a critical component. That's part of hungering for the goodness of the relationship. Inviting somebody. That's where repentance comes in, right? So... Um, Forgiveness is really important. It's, it's hungering for restoration in the relationship. It doesn't always guarantee restoration in the relationship. You can, you're all, we're always called to forgive somebody else. That's a matter of our heart. We can revoke revenge, and we can actually take the courageous step to invite somebody to do that which is good, to repent and to turn from what they've done which was wrong. That's a good step. But you can't control what another person's going to do. And a relationship uh, to be restored involves two people who are both forgiving but also repentant, who are committed 
to turn from whenever they sin, which if you're a human being is going to be often, and he's talked about this you know, previously before, we are going to have to learn to deal with our sin and to constantly forgive, but also that just doesn't, that's not a blanket statement of just going blindly back into the relationship without repenting. And that's really important because he talks about if you're in an abusive relationship, it is utter folly to go, um, to, you're, you're called to forgive that person, that's a radical thing, but it is not the will of God to, to walk blindly back into that relationship until that person's willing to repent, which involves usually accountability and seeking help from other people. So hopefully you see the difference there. Repentance, uh, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation. They're not the same things. But that's what this relationship ought to be about. And so I love the way he talks about re- uh, forgiveness. He says that usually it involves four things. This redeeming talk of forgiveness involves Acknowledging God's presence, acknowledging my failure, acknowledging your hurt, and then longing, having the desire for the mystery of intimate truth to bring us deeper. This is what was so great about it. Um, Let me just read this quote here, page 65. Redeeming talk owns our failure and then asks for favor, for grace. It owns the status of being undeserving, needy, and broken. To ask for forgiveness must go infinitely beyond saying the words, I'm sorry, forgive me. It must enter the pain of the harm that was done. It must walk through the brokenness of the other without hiding, blaming, or distorting. And it must comprehend what only the eyes of God can provide. A perspective on the harm that doesn't lose hope. See how radical this is and how hard this is to do, actually, just in any relationship, especially with somebody who sees everything the worst about you. But this is uh, what is so important. This is how marriage makes us more like God. This is the the incubation system that, that sanctifies us. The next chapter talks a lot about, uh, he, he gives the refreshing honesty to say, you know what, if... If somebody's only willing to just avoid conflict, if they don't want to shoot for this kind of radical love and forgiveness where you're entering into the pain, you're acknowledging it, you're not trying to hide or blame or distort, but you're going to give full weight of that and seek forgiveness, all of this is incredibly hard to do and much easier to say than to actually do. You you can avoid some of that and avoid, just try to avoid conflict in general and kind of scoot by in marriage. And he says, if you want to do that, then here are five ways uh, to have what he calls like a C, B minus kind of marriage. Listen longer than seems reasonable and always be four times more positive than critical. That's a pretty good, you know, all of these, a lot of these have good wisdom to them. Listen longer than seems reasonable. James talks about uh, in the New Testament that we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. So notice the next one, be slow to express anger. Count to 10 before saying anything when you are irritated. Number three, never question another person's motives or suggest that what they are saying is not what they mean. That is maddening if you keep hearing from the other person, you don't really mean that. You're not really like, you're not really saying that. That's just completely undercutting the relationship. Uh, You can fourthly avoid conflict by choosing to do simply what the other wishes 
whenever you can, whenever possible. And then fifthly, uh, in order to just kind of get along, what you need to do is constantly work to lower your expectations of what marriage might be. I think this is really sad because he's, notice, he's not saying to do this. He's not saying these are the steps you should take. He wants all of us, I think, to strive to have the kind of marriage that God intends, not this kind of just avoiding conflict. Marriage, in many ways, is intended to bring about conflict. Marriage, all relationships, when conflict comes about, it is an opportunity to become stronger than you were before. That's the secret of conflict, and that's how you can actually, if you just get that expectation right, and if you have certain uh, pieces of the groundwork laid, you can enter into conflict with a lot of hope and courage. So he noticed those four suggestions, they do have some wisdom to them, but that final one is immoral. Just lower your expectations. The rub is that these principles bespeak of efforts to get along and are not designed to help a couple grow personally or as an intimate union. A good question to ask is mediocrity immoral? And so if we are to strive for not a mediocre, mediocre marriage, but one that has all the fullness of what God's love was in create, uh, meant to be in this reflection of marriage, how can we create this kind of intimate union? He talks about four things, time, story, dreams, and risk. And so time, very simply, it's just, that's a very easy one. It just takes a lot of time. More than anything else, you have to be willing to, to say no to other things, including good things like your children, and to um, other commitments, social life. All of this is incredibly tempting to, to, to do these things and to be kind of partners in it, you know, kind of like he talks about going to a movie together, going to dinner and, and going to a movie and just kind of driving home. He says you can be seatmates in these things, or you can be um, you know, soulmates, basically weaving your souls together. And, and unless you actually cultivate the time, and he, he's not just saying the, the quantitative amount of time, but also the quality amount. That's the part when he says reflection. Um, this, this commitment to giving time to one another, it means saying no to everything else, but it also means the time that you do have with one another, it, that's what goes from a C, a B marriage, to an A marriage, is what do you do with that time? How intentional are you in planning it and preparing it? And he talks a lot uh, about the content of, of what we talk about and, and some of the things and getting after it. And so those uh, story and dreams are really kind of the content of like, kind of what we should be after in our time communicating with one another. And so um, getting to know your spouse, getting to know their stories. And now if you're married, I'm going to assume you're probably thinking, well, I don't know my spouse's story. There can be stories at a 50,000-foot view. If you've gone through terrible things in your life, there's a way to give a, a snapshot of something that's happened, but that's not really a story. What he's inviting is, I want to know, get down into these frame-by-frame frame things and tell me the story, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the things that brought you delight, the things that brought you most harm. What shaped you into the person that you are? 
And he's saying, don't for a second think that people who've been married 10, 20, 30 years have done this. This is a lifetime of work. He talked about, he and his wife were married almost 40 years, and they got married in Philadelphia, and he gave this image. Imagine trying to get to the promised land of the, the Pacific coast. And so they're probably in Illinois, he said, of knowing one another's stories. And that was shocking to me to think about because I'm like, well, I think I know a good bit of your story. Uh, but this was some of the things that he shared in this section on knowing one another's stories really stood out to me and convicted me because he said, a couple will never become wed in the fullest sense of that word wed until they become each other's favorite storyteller and listener. That cut me to the quick, because I'll be honest, as much as I love to hear my wife talk, uh, there are stories I've heard. Have you all heard your spouse tell the story more than once, maybe, or whatever relationship you're in? Saying the same stories to different people, or maybe even the same people, it can get old, and everyone, I think, knows what it can be like to be like, I've heard this, I'm going to tune out. What he says really pushes back on that. He says, we honor stories together when they're not only told and heard, but entered to experience more than has been said. A good rule of thumb is this. Every story once told opens the heart to new data to see our spouse, or sorry, to new data and a new telling. Story helps interpret story, but we will not gain new lenses to see our spouse if we go into neutral when we begin to hear a, quote, old tale. Each telling of even the best-known story will contain a word, a phrase, that adds a richer perspective than we had before. In the book, he shared this story of a friend who went to... um, his friend was this guy who had uh, a wife who came back from a store and she was telling, she was irate with the store clerk. And he, the first 10 minutes, he's just trying to calm her down, usually because he probably felt uncomfortable and was trying to control the situation a little bit. You're, you're overreacting. It's not that big of a deal. You know, these sorts of things. But she just got fed up and left the room. And uh, Allender's friend said he did something that he rarely does, but he pursued after her uh, to want to hear more of why did this rile you up so much? And she ended up telling how stories of, of going into a store where her father was, had a very short fuse and the mom was always trying to keep her just you know, in line and in check. And there was this one particular scene when she was a child, they went into a store and it just was reeked with shame because she had sent this clerk, uh, the father had got really mad at the clerk. So it was amazing that you know, all of a sudden the husband who's now hearing this story of his wife as a little child, no wonder she's irate right now. If you think about that, he says, uh, he says this, um, sorry, Oh, on the other page. He learned a great deal about this woman's father and her mother, her hatred of shopping, the fear of making a scene, and her reluctance to ever ask anyone for help. He said, in about an hour, I felt like I was introduced to a woman that I knew 
but had never met before. Stories, power, lies, and opening up a vista of perspective that makes a mere declarative sentence, uh, that a mere declarative sentence can never provide. And so what was amazing was this man, his, his friend, took his wife back to the store uh, about a week later after she told the story to her husband. And he said uh, that he had her ask the clerk for help, something that she was like just shriveled with fear and trying to do. Um, and then whenever she got frustrated with the clerk or uh, he, he soothed her, he walked her through it. That's a wonderful picture of, of really a microcosm of what we're supposed to do a million times in marriage. Hearing the stories that have shaped us, telling the details scene by scene of, of what has caused us to be kind of the way that we are, inviting the person, not just saying, okay, what is it that you want, but why do you want these things? What, what things in your past what ha- have caused you to, to love or to fear or to be ashamed of, of things today? So it's an important reason uh, to look at stories, and, and when we're talking with our spouse, even if they're old stories, there might just be a word or a phrase all of a sudden that gives us new light into who this person is. That's going to shed light on who this person's heart, what this person's heart is really all about. That's what the intimacy is created, both in listening and hearing that. I mean, you know what it's like to have somebody listening to you really well and giving you their full attention. That creates warmth. But telling something so vulnerable and receiving it, that's what binds together a husband and a wife, sharing the most intimate things that have made us who we are, and not just shutting it down, but inviting more. Tell me more of, of why, this, why you responded in this way and what you want to, um, to do now in light of it. So the stories of our past are something that we spend our lifetime working through and sharing with one another. That's why you know, troth or trust is so important, and I talked, I think last week, trust is different from love. We're supposed to love at all times. It's supposed to be unconditional. Trust is never conditional, or unconditional. It's always, it ought to be conditional, because it can be uh, lost in a second, but it takes years and years and years to build up. And in some of those places that even we haven't even told our spouse in our own life, it's because, I mean, he shared this, I think, last week, that there's 30 years of trust that has been built up to finally share a part of this story. So if you're thinking, okay, know one another's stories, I, okay, I have to check, I've done that. I want you to rethink that. There's so much more about the person you're married to. And that's one of the themes that keeps coming up is, are you absolutely astounded at the spouse that you have? Do they captivate you? Who they are, both their their failures and what they've endured and their sufferings and how they've come to be who they are and the courage and the strength that they have given what they've been through. Every single one of us, especially in our marriages, are invited to be that kind, uh, that level of captivation, to see all of, of this person and to be enthralled with it, to want to know more and more about them. And so we need to know the, the stories and then very quickly... Um, dreams are just future stories. What are the, the, the dreams, the desires that we each have for the future? Well, that's probably shaped by our past, shaped by our stories. As the, the woman who had that terrible experience with the clerk, it was her past that had shaped her present in this experience. And it's also what shapes our future. He talks about um, 
the conflicting desires. This really trivial example of they had a lot of money that came to them and they wanted each to spend that money in a very different way. She wanted to uh, buy sheets and make their bedroom really nice and he wanted a motorcycle to go off and ride to work in. Now, those desires weren't by accident. All their histories, all their past had shaped those desires in a very unique way. And so um, it's, you can, I'll share this one quote and we'll be done here actually. Um, if I don't know my wife's dreams, I am dead to her future. What does she want to do? What does she want to go, be, own, give, learn, teach, love? If I am deaf to her desires, then I will not know her heart uh, to weave her dreams to our present. Far more is needed than a discussion that answers the question, what do you want? The question that needs to be asked and addressed on a regular basis is this. Uh, uh, sorry, that question needs to be asked on a regular basis, but a more important question, or a more important thing, is reading the desire and dreams that you already know exist in your spouse and inviting her or him to narrate the stories that give those desires meaning. Again, it's getting at why has this become so meaningful to you? And this is the, the frustrating part of marriage. He names it. Is desire is this dilemma is, is often the case that desires go unfulfilled. <laughs> you know, he didn't get the motorcycle. She got the sheets. And part of what he says it so beautifully is that I, I wasn't in the moment trying to um, pretend that I was or just begrudgingly going through it. But he was entering into the joy that she had over the fact that the bedroom and the bed in particular was something that meant so much to her given her past. And so he, he forsook his own desires and entered into those desires of his wife. And it was beautiful because often our own desires will go unfulfilled. But to just deaden our desire as that fifth thing, to, to just avoid conflict, is to fall far short of what God wants for us. He says, desire gives passion to life, but the meaning of passion is actually suffering. That's why we call Holy Week the passion of Christ. To enter the dreams of the other without derision or contempt or cynical realism takes risk. And so the last part was just risk, and that's what... Uh, you have to have the power to risk, to be able to do these things well, to know the stories uh, of our past in our marriage, to, to be able to enter into the dreams that we have without cynicism, without derision or contempt. That takes an incredible amount of strength and security and risk. So how do you get that? And it goes back to what we've said again and again each week, is we have to recognize how secure and loved we are by God and what He's doing in our marriage to be able to forsake what we want, to be able to love as He's loved. You have to have money in the bank, so to speak, His love towards us to be able to love as He's loved. So that is too much already, but we're going to have to end it there because it's 1020. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, what a daunting thing to weave two souls together to be able to enter into the things that we are ashamed of. Lord, how often are we likely to make our own fig leaves, to, to fight or to, to flight, to have contempt for one another, just to make ourselves feel better. 
I pray that the things that we have talked about this morning would take root in our hearts. Would the conversations that go forth from here, uh, would we indeed speak as you speak when we are in conflict? Would we be curious? Would we have care? Would we long to see the truth as you see it? Would we not immediately disassociate and close off and fragment because we are seeing something different, our view of reality is being challenged? Would you give us the security to risk greatly, to enter into these things that are traumatic and terrifying, but have made us who we are, knowing that we have you by our side and the person that you've brought into our lives to make us more like you. Help us to be that person for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.